You're going to want to have your Bibles and put a marker in Jeremiah 29. That's going to be our primary anchor text this weekend. Uh, if you happen to be visiting, either you missed last weekend or you're visiting for the first time, you need to know we're in just a two-week mini-series. We're taking a step away from our normal fare. Uh, where we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of John. We'll be back into John next weekend. Uh, but taking two weeks to talk about this topic, about the times that we're living in, the mission that we're in, uh, and the moment that we live in. And so last weekend, we're in the book of Jude and talking about contending for the faith. And this weekend, I want to remind you of some stuff that most of you will probably say, I already knew that to be true. And that is the calling to contend. So last weekend's message, Jude, contend for the faith in the context of a people who live on the margins, if you will. A people with little influence or power. And if you've been around Northview any length of time, you'll know that we talk about this frequently. It comes up in messages. In fact, last summer, we spent 17 weeks in the, the letter First Peter. And that entire book is written to people in exile, the elect exiles, the, the metaphor for those who are on the outside of culture looking in. And so the theme is not going to be new for most of you. Now, that word exile is, is pretty simple to understand. Most of you know what it is already, but it simply means to be away from home. Uh, in the, the political sense, when a person is exiled, they have been banished from their country, and there are some very famous political exiles through world history. If a person is an exile, they might just simply say, I'm not currently residing in my true homeland. So let me ask the question, how many of you in the room were not born in Canada, but immigrated here? Uh, give me a show of hands. Yeah, quite a few, because Canada is a nation of immigrants. Uh, and I, like many of you, uh, did not grow up in Canada. I grew up south of the border, if you can forgive me for that. Uh, came to Canada as a 17-year-old college student, married a Canadian girl, and got gladly trapped north of the 49th parallel. But for the most of the early years of our marriage, uh, I traveled on a U.S. passport. And in Canada, then I relied on my paperwork called landed immigrant status to give me legitimacy here in Canada. And that landed, landed immigrant status allowed me to live here, to work here, and, you know, I could even pay taxes here. What a joy. What it did not allow me to do was uh, vote or run for public office. And certainly I couldn't get my name and face picture on a Canadian passport. I, like many of you, was an expat, an expatriate, a person away from home or, to use the biblical language, an exile, if you will. And so at border crossings, it was not uncommon for a border guard to say to me, what is your status in Canada? In other words, why should we let you across the border? What is your right to be here? And so after about 25 years of living like that, I finally took the plunge and I now travel with a Canadian passport. Uh, and I can proudly say, along with the Molson beer commercials, I am a Canadian. Yeah, I can say that. So both Old and New Testament use the language of exile to talk about the people of God. So book of Hebrews chapter 11 is a long recounting of all these godly men and women who went ahead of us, the Old Testament characters. And it says of them in verse 13 that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Old Testament, godly men and women who went before us knew they were strangers and exiles. New Testament, Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, Old and New Testament, our status here as the people of God are resident aliens. We are not truly at home in the earth as we see it today. Now we know the original creation. We know the recreation, the new heavens and the new earth. We will one day feel at home, but right now in this moment, we do not feel at home here. And so what I want to convince you of is very simply this, that Jesus has a call on our life as exiles. Very simple statement. Jesus has a call on our life as exiles. That call to impact for the glory of God, for the good of our city, as Jude would call it, to contend for the faith, And this weekend, I want to merge that call to contend with the reality that we contend from the margins. And so we're going to look at the reality of exile. We're going to look at the posture of exile. And we're going to talk about a few strategies for exile uh, near the end. So just first, the reality of exile. Uh, It is woven through the tapestry of faith, through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and all the way through church history right up till the present day. The most famous Old Testament example, of course, was God's people exiled in Babylon. Now, if you know the Old Testament stories, you will know that they were first enslaved in Egypt. God calls them out of Egypt under Moses' leadership, establishes them in the so-called promised land. And God in Deuteronomy says to them, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. When you get into this land of milk and honey, do not adopt the ways of the culture around you. Do not do as the nations around you do. Honor me as the Lord God. Don't worship idols. If you do, if you drift from me, you will be taken captive in a foreign land. Fast forward through the Old Testament, you will know the people of God did exactly what God told them not to do. And the result was they were taken captive. There was first civil war in the nation. The nation was divided north and south. The north fell to Assyria first, the the south survived longer, but eventually Nebuchadnezzar invades and they take all of the upper class, all of the ruling class, the, the, the educated, the wealthy, and they left only the poorest of the poor in the land and the rest were dragged 900 miles across the desert over to Babylon. And we get a glimpse in Psalm 137 of what they thought there in Babylon. And it says this, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres or our harps, as some translations say. For there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So you can hear the despair in their voice and the heart that these people were feeling. And so God sends them a letter through the pen of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. And we're going to come back to that in a, in a bit of a time. But the Cole's notes on it were simply this. The Lord says to him, you know what? Settle down. Settle down and pray for the peace and prosperity of this place that I've taken you. And so we'll circle back around to it. Old Testament exile. Now, New Testament, that word Babylon is code language for the spiritual exile of God's people. It is used predominantly in the book of Revelation. It also comes up in 1 Peter. Peter is written to elect exiles who are confused and troubled by the persecution they're facing. And Peter writes to pour courage and faith and hope into these people. And if you know a bit of church history, you will know that for the first three centuries, from Pentecost onward, that the church served in a culture very much like the times we live in. We would call it pre-Christian. And as we head into a post-Christian culture, there are many similarities 
A minority people seeking to impact the world from the margins of society. And it took 300 years for Christianity to reach a majority status. In that very famous Edict of Milan, when Emperor Constantine himself, who had converted to Christianity and now declares Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire, but it took 300 years to get there. So 120 people gathered on Pentecost weekend. The spark of the Holy Spirit lands and the church was birthed. And then little by little, like yeast in a lump of dough, like a a mustard seed growing to a large tree, the church, historians would tell us, not explosive growth, but just a general 3 to 4% year after year, decade after decade, until 300 years later, they are now the majority in the Roman Empire. That's a bit of church history from the margins. Now fast forward to the North American context. And we're living in the midst of one of the most dramatic shifts in North American culture in our history. We talked about it last weekend, that little scan through the library books, that in the last 25 years here in North America, we are witnessing the most rapid decline in Christian church attendance in the history of North America. And call it whatever you want to call it, but radical secularization in the West is very well documented. There is tons written on this. Now, Ed Stetzer, in his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, gives us a graphic, which you've seen it before. Put it up on the screen. Uh, My staff kind of mocks me because they know that you're going to see this three to four times a year. They always wonder, when's he going to put up the river again? But here it is. Here's the river. Because it's a beautiful graphic, a picture to help us understand. So the river represents simply our culture, the river of our culture. We use this language. Mainstream culture believes this, that, and the other thing. So you're familiar with the language. Stetzer talks about these last 60 to 80 years, the the past, the present, and the future where we're headed. So anybody in the room over 40 remembers your childhood in those past days. So like any river, you fly over the Fraser, you'll know there's little uh, islands in the river that, you know, put it into various streams. There has always been that tiny stream across the top of atheistic, agnostic, other world religions, or those who say, I have absolutely no faith in God whatsoever. That has always been in North America, but it has been a minority position, and the vast majority of our culture would check off on the census box, Christian. Now, what did that mean to them? Because the vast majority of them were not true confessional Christians, but they were cultural Christians. Uh, in, In Canada, we say, God keep our land glorious and free. We must be Christians. South of the border, it's printed on the money. In God, we trust. Obviously, we're Christians cultural Christians. They maybe grew up saying the Lord's Prayer in school. They know what the Ten Commandments are about, but they have nothing to do with the church. The second group are congregational Christians, people who would actually say, you know what, if you pressed me, I belong to some church somewhere. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Mennonite, whatever. They never go to church, but they belong to one. Uh, They marry and they bury in the church. They might show up at Christmas and Easter, but largely have nothing to do with it, and yet they would claim a congregational adherence. And then there's that smaller group at the bottom called convictional or confessional Christians, which over the last 80 to 100 years has bumped along steadily at about 15 to 20% of North American population are those who are actively engaged in the life of the church. It's a very good picture. Stetzer's conclusion is that convictional Christians now, because you can see where we're headed, a new island has come along, and the streams are dividing. It's no longer a good thing to claim to be a Christian, and that squishy middle, as sociologists call it, are now adhering more with the secular values. 
Convictional Christians are losing our voice and some people are getting angry. So Stetzer says this, since their values and practice has shaped culture for so long, they, Christians, had the impression that they owned the culture in some sense and these Christians want their country back. And by that, they mean they want their cultural power back. Now, last year in the winter, Aaron Wren wrote an article in First Things Magazine, which dovetails beautifully with Stetzer's premise. He said there have been three worlds of evangelicalism, aligns right along with Stetzer's river. The first was the positive world, pre-1994, where society at large took a mostly positive view of Christians. If you were a church attender, that was thought of a good thing. You're probably a good neighbor. You're probably honest in business. It's great that you go to church. Being known as a Christian enhanced your status. It's why every president right up till today's election claimed to be Christians. Why? Because it is a good thing to say so. Christian morals are the basic norms of society. Then the neutral world from 1994 to 2014 where Christianity no longer has a privileged status, but it's not necessarily disfavored. You attend church, eh, whatever, it's good for you. It's not necessarily good, not necessarily bad, whatever. And Christian morals are just one choice in the smorgasbord of a pluralistic culture. And then from 2014 onward, the negative world, where identifying as a Christian, especially as an evangelical Christian, is now a social negative. Christian morality is expressly repudiated, even seen as a threat to the public good. And so holding Christian views can bring negative consequences. Now, we'll move on. And you may or may not agree with these specific analyses. You may or may not think things are as bad as described, and we could debate all that, but it is pretty hard to avoid the reality of exile, whether from a historical, spiritual, or a contemporary sense. And there's two ditches that I see and hear Christians falling into these days. And the first is the ditch of apathy on one side and the ditch of despair on the other side. And the ditch of apathy is common among evangelicals who still live in a quote-unquote Christian subculture or a Christian bubble, who, who live in a context where they themselves may or may not be experiencing the negative that we hear about. Uh, they're largely protected from the larger cultural moment that we're in. Uh, They tend to live in places like the Bible Belt of the deep south of the U.S. or the Niagara Peninsula over in Ontario or a little place called the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Aaron Wren says this, despite ample evidence that North America has now entered the negative world, no evangelical uh, strategic approaches to it have emerged. That's an important thought. American evangelicals, are largely living in the lost, positive, and neutral worlds. Evangelicals were, and to a great extent still are, unwilling to accept that they now live in the negative world. Don't believe it, don't care, apathetic. The other ditch, which I think is perhaps more prevalent among the Christians that I know, and perhaps that you know, are Christians who have fallen prey to despair. Christians who somehow look at the impending darkness in front of us and somehow have forgotten the promises of God, have forgotten that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself can't prevail against my church. 
I have begun a good work in you. I will carry it on to completion, Philippians 1.6. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There are no powers, there are no principalities and powers in the spiritual realms, and there's certainly no earthly powers that can separate you from my love. There is one who can keep you blameless and present you before his presence with exceeding great joy. Amen? That we have somehow forgotten those promises and fallen into the ditch of despair. And so what should be our posture in exile? So Jeremiah, God writes through his pen and responds to that despair of Psalm 137 that we read earlier. How can we possibly sing God's songs in this God-forsaken land? And the Lord says to them, verse 4 to 7, Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And then verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, far more than simply being a cliche on a poster or a coffee mug, and that's not a bad thing. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But far more than simply being a cliche, this is a word of courage and resilience to a people who were literally living as prisoners of war. And the Lord is saying to them, I've got your back. And if you know and have studied this area, you will know a lot of good came out of this period of time. In fact, some of our favorite Old Testament characters that we teach our kids about in Sunday school come out of this area. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Esther who rose to power for quote unquote such a time as this. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, who led the nation in rebuilding of Jerusalem. And historians also tell us that the Jewish synagogue system likely began in Babylon. So the synagogue, they were away from the temple. The temple had been destroyed. They couldn't go there. And they began to worship in what we today might call a community group or a house church. A synagogue required 12 adult men. So in other words, 10 to 12 families would gather, small enough to stay under the radar, but large enough to have good fellowship and teaching and community and encouragement. What a blessing that came out of exile. And we could talk for hours about the imperatives for life in the exile, but I want to grab just two and try to make them very practical from this text. And the first one would be this, stop whining and start praying. That's what God says through Jeremiah's pen to these people. Isn't it interesting that God takes the credit for sending them into exile? If you read Jeremiah 29 in the context, it opens with saying, Nebuchadnezzar took you to Babylon. And from there on out, the rest of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar does not get a mention. It is, I sent you there. I took you there. Pray for the city where I, the Lord God, the sovereign Lord, have sent you. The Lord orchestrated this event. He takes all the credit. 
And you see, if we truly believe our doctrines of sovereignty as we say we do, then we should have nothing to fear from the winds of culture because they cannot and they will not destroy the work of God through Jesus Christ. We can have a confidence. And the New Testament has so many similar encouragements and admonitions. So just one, for sake of time, Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, we studied Philippians about 18 months ago or so, and when we got to this context, I remember saying to you, if you wanted to do just one thing that would cause you to radically stand out in the day and age that we are living in and have an impact under the glory of Christ, just stop grumbling and disputing. If you just did that one thing in the cultural moment we're in, it would cause us to stand out like light in the darkness. And so God, through Jeremiah, challenges these folks, pray for the peace and prosperity. Now think it through, of the enemy state that I have taken you to. You're like, pray for Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, pray for this place where I have taken you. Because as this place prospers, so too will your family and you will find prosperity. Secondly, our language matters. You see, we're bilingual people. We have to speak the language of our culture. We have to stay up with the times. Terms are changing all the time. Words are being redefined. What does a culture mean when they say this, that, and the other word? And we live in this world, and we have to speak the language of this world. But we also have a dialect that is unique to the people of God. We call it the language of Zion. We speak God's dialect. Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so the simple questions are, will we be blessers of people? In fact, will we bless our captors? Will we sing the songs of Zion when it feels like all hell is breaking loose around us? In fact, I think one of the positive reasons why we come together in worship and why we lift our voices in song, and whether you're a great musician or not, and whether you love music or not, there's something about lifting your heart and voice in worship unto God and declaring the songs of Zion over a crazy culture. Amen? I sometimes wish we could sing longer and longer, but it's because I happen to love music. And if you don't, well, that's fine. Just, you know, suck it up, whatever. Anyway, we should be worshiping like that. Stetzer says this, everyone can be destructive and negative. It's easy to stand on the sidelines and shout out what's wrong with the situation and why everyone and everything is bad or wrong. In other words, he goes on to say cynicism is the easiest thing to slip into. It's very easy to be a critic and deconstruct everything. It's something else to speak positive language. Secondly, language matters in a very practical sense because Scripture has so much to say about the power of the tongue. That literally death and life are in the tongue. Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. James in the New Testament says you can't tame your tongue, and if you can tame your tongue, you can tame your entire being. The tongue is like a fire. It sets stuff ablaze, and we should not bless God with one breath and then turn around and curse our brother who is made in the image of God in the second breath. And in our day of vitriol, 
One of the most powerful tools at the disposal of the Christian is to refuse to pick up the mantle of outrage that drives so much of our cultural dialogue, to respond with gentleness and respect seasoned with salt. And so our posture as exiles is one of quiet confidence. We know the outcome. We know the ultimate end. We've read the end of the book. We know who's on the throne. And so we don't need to pick up the tone and the fighting spirit of the culture around us. Okay, finally, what are some strategies? Strategies for exile. So last weekend in Jude, at the end of it, he gave us a sevenfold mandate, contend for the faith. And then he said this, but you behold, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, it leads to eternal life, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. A sevenfold mandate, contend for the faith, build yourself up. And there are so many practical steps we could talk about in guarding the faith on a personal level. But the first question that I have to ask before any other, before we even talk about any of that, is the most basic and fundamental question is this, are you all in? And honestly, I mean that question for every man, woman, boy, and girl who are listening to this message in this room or watching over at Mission or East, are you in? Because if you're not all in, then the rest of the conversation just run off the back. Like, forget about it, it doesn't really matter. Have you made a personal decision to respond to the call of God on your life? In other words, have you turned away from your sin and turned toward the living God? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you responded to his call? Uh, the Bible uses a word called repentance. We don't use that word a lot in our English language. It simply means to turn around. To repent means I turn. I was walking in one direction. I'm walking away from God. I have turned, and now I am walking toward him. And I have to ask that fundamental basic question, are you all in? Have you made a profession of faith? Have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And you're like, well, how would I do that? It's as simple as saying yes. Lord, I understand. I believe what the Bible says about me. I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. I believe that I can't be right with God through any other means than the finished work of Christ. I'm willing to say yes to your will and your ways for my life. That's the starting point. And if you haven't done it, in fact, I would encourage you even right now in this moment, if you're in this room saying, I've never done that, do it right now. Just in your heart of hearts, say, Lord, I will say yes to your will and your ways. I will make a confession of faith. Because that starting point is critical to everything else that follows. And then I would ask the question, are you hot or cold or lukewarm? And we'll get there in the summer, uh, Laodicea, hot and cold are both good. They're useful. Lukewarm, man, spit you out. Are you on fire? Are you sitting on the fence? The devil owns the fence. Are you all in? Jude's imperative to build yourself up in the faith is for people who are all in. And it can be applied in three very simple questions. Are you placing yourself in a position of learning? Are you asking God to warm your heart? And thirdly, are you actively looking for ways to serve? Now, if you're following along my line of thinking, we're talking about head, heart, and hands. Are you placing yourself in a learning posture? 
And I could put up on the screen a long list of programs and ministries and opportunities. Get on our website. There is something for almost every age group around Northview. And beyond Northview, get online and Google and go to Christian bookstores, etc. There is no excuse for anybody in North America to say, I don't know what to do to grow in my faith. There are vast resources to help us grow deep. And the question I have to ask is, are you actively engaged asking the Spirit of God to mold and shape your mind? Mind. But secondly, are you also asking God to stir your heart, to warm your heart? And I'm not talking about emotionalism, but I'm talking about a deep-seated desire to know the Father. Is there a passion in your heart to know and love the Savior more? Can you pray prayers like Tozer wrote? We've seen this one before. Oh God, I've tasted thy goodness. It has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. Oh God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray, that I may know thee. Do we pray prayers like that? Do we have a desire that says, God, it's more than just head knowledge. I don't want to just have my mind filled with great theological doctrines and precision. That's important, but I also want my heart stirred. I want to feel you, God. And then finally, are you actively seeking for ways to serve? Head, heart, and hands. We are the hands and voice and the feet of Jesus. And one of the fastest ways to grow deep in your Christian faith is to actively step into Christian service. And so as we turn the calendar page, and that's what we've been talking about, as we move into another year of ministry, and we look at the opportunities in front of us, obviously 80-90% of what we focus on is right here at home. Right here in a church family, we're talking about the discipleship of men and women in Abbotsford and Mission, the mission field that God has given to us. We're responsible for building right here in our own backyard. So the majority of our time and our effort and our energy are spent here. And yes, we talk about global missions and church planning and leadership development, but the vast majority of our time is trying to lead as many people as possible to faith in Jesus and then to help them get rooted down deeply in God's word. And we have that vision, yes, to be part of seeing a, a, a gospel-centered church within reach of every Canadian. And so we're spending a ton of time and energy and money on resourcing, on leadership training, on church planning, on global mission. You may or may not know this. For every dollar that you donate generously to God's work at Northview, 25 cents of that goes out the doors in leadership development, in global mission, and in church planning. It's a huge investment of trying to be part of what God is doing beyond the walls of Northview. But within the walls of Northview, on top of those, there are things that we need to be pressing into. And I really feel like that in the coming years, the Lord wants us to press into these four areas. And I'll leave these with you for your thought. The area of prayer, the area of building islands of sanity. I'll talk a little bit about that. Reaching the next generation and equipping the marketplace. And really briefly, prayer is something we talk about all the time. And yet we can never emphasize too much. Because friends, if we truly believe the theology that we preach and teach around this place, then we should be the greatest men and women of prayer in the country. Because if we believed that nothing of spiritual impact actually happens unless the Holy Spirit ignites it, amen? 
And that is what our doctrine tells us, that unless the Spirit of God, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And yes, we are his hands, his feet, his voice. He uses us. We must work. We must serve. We must love. We must give. But ultimately, it is up to the Holy Spirit. So if we believe that, we would be on our knees crying out, oh Lord, would you do what only you can do? We'd pray for revival, sleepy Christians waking up, an awakening of those who have never been men and women of faith. Secondly, we need to build these islands of sanity. And I've stolen that line from Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option. He talks about the intentional building of new forms of community and of strengthening the foundational institutions of society, which are the family, the church, the school, the home, that these islands of sanity in the midst of a cultural sea. Uh, he says this, a couple quotes. What I'm calling for is strategic withdrawal, a limited kind of culture war Dunkirk operation to gain the church militant a space in which to regroup, retrain, and re-engage in the long struggle. This is not a call to escapism and inaction. Rather... It is a call to deeper attention to spiritual disciplines and building resilient Christian community, both for our own sake and for the life of the world Christ calls us to serve. And then he goes on to say this, and this is quite provocative, that rather than wasting energy and resources fighting unwinnable political battles, we should instead work on building communities, institutions, and networks of resistance that can outwit, outlast, and eventually overcome the occupation. Don't you like that? I'm like, yeah, I'd like to be part of that. This is why we so often talk about deep roots in two ways. Deep roots, yes, down into the Bible, into scripture, into sound doctrine and theology, getting your roots down, building on the scriptures. But secondly, Deep roots in Christian community. Knowing that we cannot and we will not survive if we isolate ourselves from brothers and sisters in Christ. If you look back through those exiles, you will see that they survived because of the communities that they were part of. Daniel had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at his side. Young Esther had her uncle Mordecai supporting her behind the scenes. Men in history like William Wilberforce, who brought about the abolition of the slave trade, had a whole group of people called the Clapham sect behind him who stood with him, encouraged him, challenged him to keep at it. And most of the folks who today would check off the box nuns or duns when it comes to spiritual speaking began with a simple drift away from Christian fellowship. They got isolated. They began... To not go to church. They got out of community. They got out of fellowship. They got out of relationship. And oh, how we need our brothers and sisters to hold our feet to the fire. Number three, we need to talk about the next generation. And you're like, well, Pastor Mark, tell me something I don't know. Every generation, this has been our challenge. That we must pass the faith along one generation to the next. And that is true. So here's some of the questions I find myself asking about our particular mission field. When we get very specific, we are told that there are 27,000 students in Abbotsford and Mission in grade K to 12 in the public school system. 20,000 here in Abbotsford, 7,000 across the river on the North Shore. Add on top of that several thousands who are in private school. 
and hundreds, maybe thousands of others who are in homeschool co-ops, and the numbers add up easily over 30,000 children between grades K to 12 in Abbotsford admission. And so the question I began to ponder in my mind is how many of those 30,000 children have heard about the love of Jesus Christ? How many of them are currently outside a hearing of the gospel? And how many of them might God use Northview? And of course, we're not going to do it alone, but as a partner, how many of them might God use Northview to have an impact for the gospel's sake? If statistics tell us that the majority of people come to faith in Christ before age 18, then strategic and generous investment in kids and youth and young adult ministry should be a no-brainer for us. And you know this, that we can't force our kids to follow Jesus. There's no way a parent or a grandparent can impose faith upon a kid. So what do we do? We pile the wood of the Holy Spirit on their life, right? Good teaching, good theology, good Bible teaching, so that when the spark of the Holy Spirit lands, there's tons of kindling there. There's fuel for the fire. So parents and grandparents, keep piling the wood on your kids so that when that spark hits, the fire will exalt. And then finally, like the greatest challenge in front of us, I think is this, equipping the saints for the work of ministry in the marketplace. You've heard me talk a lot about this. If we're going to make an impact in our city, I think we've made a huge miscalculation. If we think that the work of ministry is what you do inside the walls of the church when the people of God are gathered. Now, be very clear, it is not either or, it is both and. It has always been both and. The church inside the walls of the church needs an army of servants to simply keep the ministries moving. Table group leaders at Bible studies, community group hosts in their homes, food service teams, food and coffee and meals and snacks, setup and teardown teams, hospitality tech teams, ushers and greeters, musicians, etc. Literally, there are hundreds of opportunities to serve one another within the walls of the church. And frankly, if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, you should be joyfully and gladly serving your brothers and sisters. That's just a no-brainer. But that being said... The vast majority of the majority of your waking hours are not spent inside the walls of the church, are they? I know, because I'm here from day to day. You're not here. You're spending your lives out where God has called you in the marketplace, in the school, in the sports field, in the community. And I truly believe the greatest impact we will see in the coming years is in the 24-7 of our lives sent on mission. Because in this post-Christian world, there may be obstacles and challenges, there may be some settings where you're limited in what you can say publicly, but no one can stop you from loving and praying and serving and extending the grace of God, right? Cannot be stopped. And one of the dreams we're working on is trying to expand our leadership development training to include an intentional track for, for marketplace leaders. And I've said this lots, but let me remind you, if you claim to follow Jesus, you are in full-time ministry. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you are in full-time ministry. It just so happens that you get your paycheck from maybe the school district or Fraser Health or Starbucks or whatever your employer is. And isn't it really nice of them to pay you to do the ministry God has called you to do? Is that not great? We are called to contend as exiles. And as we look into the year ahead and also beyond, we do it with a sober awareness of our cultural moment. And we could, like Wizard of Oz, Dorothy to Toto, say, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. 
We could, like Apollo 13, we got a problem up here, Houston. Or we could anchor ourselves to verses like Revelation 3.8, we looked at last week. I have set before you an open door that nobody can shut. And so what might God do if we settle down? If we build houses and plant gardens and give our kids in marriage? And we build businesses that honor the Lord and we invest in Christian education and we talk about the beauty of God's sexual ethic and we enter the public arena with a quiet confidence knowing that the sovereign Lord of the universe has gone ahead of us every day. What might God do through the people of God? And so I hope and pray that nothing I have said today has come as any great revelation to you. I hope and pray that you're already saying in your spirit, yes and amen. I hope and pray you're actually saying, you know what, I believed all that before you even spoke it, Pastor Mark. Great, that's what I hope. But what might God call us to strategically? Not in the next few months, but literally in the next 10 and 20 and 30 years, if we took a long-range strategy to cultural engagement. What a time to be alive. What a challenge, what an opportunity. I hope you're up for it, because I can't think of a better way to invest our lives. Amen? So let me pray for us, and then we're going to come together for communion. So Lord Jesus, you know our times and the seasons that we're in. And you know the context in which all of these men and women, these boys and girls, are living their lives in these days. And Lord, you know that the mass, vast majority of our time is spent out in the community in the rough and tumble of daily life. And I am sure there are men and women in this room who feel like they're up against some obstacles. But Lord, I pray that you would blow the winds of encouragement into the sails of our spirit. That you would remind us again that you are indeed the sovereign Lord. You are Lord over the universe. You are Lord over our lives. And that you are going ahead of us in this time and place. And Lord, I pray that you would fan into flame the vision that you have given to us. That we might see literally hundreds and thousands of people, first of all, come to faith in Christ and then get their roots down deep into your word and into Christian community. Would you bind us together by your spirit, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.